0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of On The Verge with your hosts, Kenneth Shinozuka and Ali Reza Omidvar. Today, we're going to be talking about spiritual capitalism. Um, Should spiritual teachers be in the business of making money off of the courses they offer? Um, I thought there would be two potential avenues for thinking about this. The first is um, psychedelics. So... Um, you know, obviously psychedelics are incredible spiritual vehicles for, um, accessing universal truths. Um, and in the past, these used to be, you know, highly ritualized, um, substances that, uh, individual small communities would use, um, to, you know, further their path, um, in a lot in spirituality. Um, but now, um, you know, big pharma is potentially going to be taking over psychedelics, um, in order to make it more accessible to people who are suffering from things like PTSD and treatment resistant depression, obviously a good cause. But, you know, are we at the risk of, you know, companies charging thousands and thousands of dollars for people to be able to access these medications? Additionally, you have the the rise of, you know, um, essentially uh, ayahuasca tourism, where, uh, you know, um, billionaires uh, or very wealthy people in places like Silicon Valley are spending upwards of thousands of dollars in order to be able to go to um, South America, uh, take ayahuasca but then arguably come back and just perpetuate the same behaviors that they did in the past. Actually, no wiser. That's one avenue. Second avenue is um, just thinking about spiritual teachers in general. Um, so, you know, once once you become famous enough uh, as a spiritual teacher, you can actually make a lot of money. One great example of this is Eckhart Tolle, um, who uh, is a spiritual teacher um, who became famous in the late 90s after he wrote this book called The Power of Now. Before then, Um, he was leading a very modest lifestyle at one point in his life was homeless and, you know, sitting on a park bench, but then after he wrote his book, he made lots of money, um, appeared on Oprah, uh, and now charges upwards of thousands of dollars for people to attend his retreats. Um, so what are the ethics of all this? Should any of this be happening? Uh, Ali, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, thank you, Kenneth, for providing a good introduction. I think psychedelics is actually a great example. Um, but let's focus on Eckhart Tolle because I do know of, of Eckhart Tolle. Um It's interesting yeah. to think about the definition of spiritual capitalism. Well, capitalism is a system that promotes the uh, the savings of money for your own interest, for your own self-interest. So you uh, make money through your spiritual courses, your books, and then you use that money to, let's say, buy a house or buy a car or have a lavish lifestyle. The point is that it is for self-interest. It is for you, for your own, not for others. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about Ecartol because there could be many scenarios what Ecartol could do with that money. So let's say he has a amazing mission, and his mission is use all the money he's charging to <clears throat> to further enhance his courses, further make uh, make his courses um, accessible to everybody who's listening to him, and thereby expand consciousness. And so by investing in his podcast and his um, books and content, he can actually use that money to promote th- the good that he that he likes, the way he likes to promote the good, which is through his courses. I still have a question that even, even if Ecotol does that, then my question is, is he still using some money, some big money, let's say a couple of million to let's say buy a house or buy some, some expensive, let's say watch or clothing. doesn't matter what it is. The point is that if he's spending some big money on a lavish lifestyle, is that ethical? I do think it's ethical if he spends the money on, on improving his courses. Um, but then how much of the money is going to his own life and how much is it going to others? I think that's the main question I would have. Right. Right. So it's interesting that you mentioned this because arguably, you know, for any
0: kind of uh, company, um, or individual that is, um, charging a certain price, you know, for a service that they're providing, you know, they can use the, the profits that they earn to improve their service. So, you know, take mm-hmm. for example, like a biotech company, right. Um, You know, uh, perhaps uses the profit profits that it makes um, in order to be able to um, create new kinds of technologies or do new kinds of research into, for instance, like, you know, how to tackle cancer. So they use the profits they make to um, further achieve their goals. And as a result, you know, they're able to cure cancer better, for example, or treat cancer better and then make the world a better place. What distinguishes, I think, spirituality from um, a lot of these other kinds of industries is that spiritual teachers already claim to have figured out the answer. Um, in Mm -hmm. other words, they know what the universal truth is. Uh, in the case of Eckhart Tolle, it's, you know, being, being here now, being in the present moment. Um, and so in a certain sense, there's nothing to refine. Um, there's, there isn't necessarily, um, you know, a, a, a truth that you would be able to access if you were to have more money to be able to pursue it. Um, it is true that, you know, you could design, um, you know, things that improve, I guess, like the public's awareness of those universal truths, but the universal truth is already there. And these spiritual teachers have already figured it out, um, mm. so I, I think that's just an important thing to note. Um, and then, regarding your question about, um, you know, uh, should spiritual teachers be in the business of, of making making a lot of money? I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a it's a it's a good question, and um, it boils down to whether or not um, you think that spirituality uh, is a matter of asceticism, um, Eckhart's views on this are interesting that like he thinks that, um, asceticism is actually not the path to enlightenment. Um, you know, if you, uh, starve yourself and go into a cave uh, and strip naked, um, for 10 years, um, you're actually not necessarily going to be any closer to the truth, um, than somebody who's living a comfortable material life. Um, so Eckhart discourages people from doing that. Um, um, but you know, um, and And I don't think that he would necessarily be in favor of living a lavish lifestyle by any means mm. either um and i and I frankly don't really know what Eckhart is actually doing with the money that he's making um mm. from all these courses and retreats mm. that he's doing um but yeah, I mean I, I think he would probably just say like you know like make enough to have a comfortable life uh mm. and you know just don't be excessive yeah you
1: know. yeah, I think. Let's call, um, this type of people who spend some money on their, um, on their own life and spend some money for others. Let's call that responsible spiritual capitalism. Um, I still have a big question for responsible spiritual capitalists. And that question is, let's say I want to go to Eckhart Tolle to benefit from his teaching and from his practice. Let's say he's teaching uh, a practice of self-inquiry. Okay. I am a student. I don't have a huge income and I, Looking for enlightenment, looking to improve my life. I go on his website and I see uh, his courses, uh, his events, and they cost, let's say, £2,000 for a two day retreat. I think this is where I have a problem. It's not exactly what they do with the money, as long as they spend that money productively in whatever way they want, whatever way they, they wish. I think my problem is that are there courses specifically for a certain kinds of people? Rich people who have money and who have a lot of time money and time to go to this retreat, I would like somebody Absolutely. like Troll or somebody like Rupert Spira to have a let's say pricing plans and there is one option which says lower income and low income doesn't mean you spend two three hundred it means you spend something like twenty thirty pounds um so right, right. you could kind of hit uh you could you could achieve your goal of making money of Um, creating your courses, promoting them and still make money, but still allow a kind of a certain kinds of people who don't have the money or the, or the opportunity to come for them to also be able to come to your events. Um, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem that that there's something wrong with that. As in, you could just forgo making extra money, but in case save those souls, let's say, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I've been to a
0: couple meditation retreats, um, in America. Um, the, the longest one that I did was, um, at this retreat center called, uh, Dharma Dena, um, or Mm -hmm. Dama Dena, um, in, um, Southern California. Um, and it's very modest retreat. It was basically in like a few trailers, um, in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. So their upkeep cost was pretty minimal. Um, you know, they were essentially just charging for, you know, people to be able to stay there, um, people to have Mm -hmm. food um, paying staff and that was pretty much it. Um, and so there was a sort of like baseline cost. And then on top of that, you know, if you had a really great experience at the retreat, then you could also donate back to the center. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, like there was like a minimal baseline, but then, you know, if they wanted to improve their services, for example, then they would uh, use the donations that they got um, from people who Mm -hmm. had a positive experience there, which seems to me to be a pretty good model. Um, and then, you know, I've also been to other retreats where, um, um, there have been student discounts, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I completely agree with you that you know um, that uh, yeah, it's it's very easy to you know end up uh, I guess a charging a lot, but also b sort of coming up with reasons to to charge a lot of money. So like Deepak Chopra, mm-hmm. for example, is is a good example of this. Like he has these extraordinarily uh, opulent uh, <laughs> uh, retreat centers in Southern California. Um, where you can do things like, you know, like have incredible massages and great, you know, facials and, 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 you know, just like, um, you know, really nice, luxurious services inside of a really beautiful facility. Mm -hmm. Um, and you'll probably come out of that feeling really relaxed. Um, maybe less so if you realize that your wallet is empty after the occasion, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) but, um, but, but yeah, you know, like it's, it's also just not accessible. Um to Mm -hmm. you know people who especially people who are students um i think the other thing to keep in mind is that also like with a lot of the stuff like a lot of the knowledge is freely available online Mm -hmm. um and you know it it might you might have to do a little bit of digging but if you want to say you know access a a library of guided meditations you don't have to pay for that you know there's this app insight timer where you can get Mm -hmm. thousands of of Mm -hmm. meditations for free um if you want to learn yoga you don't have to pay for that either. Just do some searching on YouTube. Um, Yes. And, you know, it's really, I think like if if you have, if you have the drive to, to search online, um, as long Mm -hmm. as you're okay with everything, not necessarily being in one centralized place, then it is possible to get all this knowledge for free.
1: And that's exactly what they would reply. If if you say that to them, they will say, well, we have contents freely available on YouTube and um, on my website and et cetera, et cetera. But still, I, I do think that, the people who need the help the most are the ones who probably don't have as much money. So if you are organizing events and your goal is to improve people's lives, which people are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing the people who have money and have time and let's say they're working through some emotional issues, which I do not, um, say that's, that's, you know, that's, I don't judge that, but there is a kinds of, um, there's, type of people who are genuinely struggling financially, emotionally, completely, and they don't have the money to even, and perhaps for those people, actually, if they hear the message, because they're in such a difficult place, the impact of, yes. let's say somebody like Eckhart Tolle's words, would could be a lot stronger and they could be totally transformed in those events. Because I think even though, yeah, you have access to those videos, you don't have a mentor, you don't have a direct, face-to-face communication. You don't have that direct teacher. Um, a lot of the transmission Absolutely. of these teachings is actually personal. Um, you learn this if you do spiritual courses online or if you do them in person, is that the true help that you get is not from reading or studying, it's from a transmission from a teacher to the student. Mm. So the, yeah. the actual learning is a transmission of the energy that goes between the student and right. the teacher. And I feel like that's a lot yeah. more difficult to establish online when you're just watching the videos. So it's just one way direction. The energy is not two way, just one way. Yeah. And I'm not saying it doesn't work, but I'm saying that probably not as effective as if you had a, a mentor or a coach like record toll or Rupert Spira. Um, so um, that's a, like a really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like a really interesting question is, Go keep going.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say that I, I think that's a really interesting point. And um, uh, yeah. I was going to bring up this anecdote um, by Ram Dass uh, in his book, Be Here Now. Um, so Ram Dass, for, for audience members who are not familiar, um, was a Harvard professor in the 60s um, who taught psychology and then got fired from Harvard for giving psychedelics to students. <laughs> um, but he was uh, he was one of the most um, renowned early researchers uh, on psychedelics. Mm um and you know he had extraordinary spiritual experiences with psychedelics um uh but always found that he would come down from the mountain afterwards um you know he had these peak experiences but then they would end and afterwards you know he he'd leave sort of feeling empty inside and so he embarked on this spiritual path And essentially he was looking for someone to give him, you know, a transmission, um, you know, a transmission of some kind of a spiritual teaching. And he searched for many, many years, um, and then, you know, uh, traveled around the world and eventually ended up in India, um, where he met, um, this guru, um, who then ended up becoming, you know, his, his guru and spiritual guide for the rest of his life. Um, and you know, that, that guru was an extraordinarily powerful, um, energetic teacher, essentially, um, Mm. who Ram Das claims had more or less supernatural powers that included things like telepathy. Um, and, um, you know, like for example, the first time that he met Ram Das, um, he was able, this guru was able to, um, know the cause of his mother's death a year prior, you know, just, just first time face to face meeting. Right. Um, and then later on, he, you know, he describes, for example, like, you know, meditation sessions where everybody would be sitting down and the guru would just, would just be there, you know, sitting simply sitting, but he would just be emanating these, you know, this aura mm,
1: essentially of unconditional love that everybody in the room
0: could feel that. Exactly. That's the teaching. Mm-hmm. And you can read that in words on a page, um, but it's an entirely different thing to, you know, to have that transmitted to you energetically which can only really mm. happen in an in-person container. Um, exactly. so yeah, I can see on that. Yeah.
1: Yes. Or even more accurately, not in person, but uh, like a scenario where both of you are connected or talking to each other or in each other's presence. Um, so they know you're right. here right. and you know, they're, they're there. Yeah. Um, because there are exactly. online transmissions. You can have a teacher receive a transmission online. Um, yeah, I mean That's it's right. very interesting because at the Oxford Psychedelic Society, which we both um, work in, um, we actually have a very good, I would say, way of um, organizing our finances. We charge only if there are there are certain special events that require us to give their speakers some money or their the musicians some money, and perhaps a very like twenty percent, um, or fifteen percent off uh, from. From the money we make that goes to the OPS at uh, the psychedelic society for, um, for our, so that we can use that money to promote our events, uh, whether it's marketing costs, whether it's creating better events. Um, I think we are striking a good core, but the problem I have is watching people online and then thinking, okay, this, this is a spiritual teacher. And then I'll go on their website and I see the, uh, the fees are, uh, for, uh, 250 pounds for an hour of consultation. Yeah. Um, see, the real interesting question, another interesting question is, I don't think the universe, I don't think the universe is like a calculus, you know, like, as in all the money you earn, you have to spend it on other people, or you have to spend it on causes. I don't believe the universe is calculus. I believe the universe is actually a lot of the time telling us to have a com- comfortable life. Yeah, to buy maybe, yeah, that one million house that you want to, because that puts you in a certain state of mind and you probably, you probably get happier and more comfortable. And I don't see the universe as just like a dead calculus, as, as we all like a utilitarian way that we all the money we have to earn. Uh, like somebody like Peter Singer would say that all the money we earn, we have to, or at least, not all of it, but the majority of it, we have to donate to others, support causes, charitable causes, and then have minimal amount of money to survive. Uh, but I think on a utilitarian model that makes sense, but on a more dynamic model of the universe where emotions themselves could be like a way of giving back, if that makes sense, like the the quality of your being could itself be um, a way of giving back to the universe, you know, what Rupert Spiros said in the podcast, um, yep. that right. a meditator who goes in a cave and meditating, he has equal effect, if not more, or if not less, uh, than somebody who is just helping the poor, you know, right. we can't right. see everything in a directly causal way of material causality that if this person gets his food and survives, this is the only way people can be helped. I think if you have a different right. understanding of the universe, which includes something like all is mind and all, everything is a single mind, then yeah. your thoughts and the emotions themselves could be a way of service. You know, if you think positive thoughts, if you are having fun, uh, all of those things, even though they can, is counterintuitive, counterintuitive, they could be way, ways of service. Um, yeah. So a more Absolutely. expansive understanding of the, of the universe, which includes energy, and includes state of being. I think that could allow us to look at people like Eckhart Tolle and, let's say, Rupert Spira, and perhaps not judge when they buy a you know a house that costs five hundred k, but to see it through the lens of, where well, there's many ways they can be helping people. And if they have probably if they have a good house and they feel happy, they feel stable, you know that could be beneficial for them and for their community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you uh, if you're radiating good vibes then you're making the universe a better place, you know? Exactly, um, yeah. <laughs> And that's what it's about at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that, like, yeah, you need a certain amount of money to, to be comfortable. Um, and um, I don't have any opposition to that. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, like, spending money lavishly um, is probably hmm. not going to be good for radiating good vibes um, to the universe. <laughs> um Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I personally have nothing wrong with, you know, um, spiritual teachers living in, in very comfortable, nice places, you know, um, I think they're not actively harming anybody by doing it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, uh, like if, if, if they're able to um, you know, provide their services in an accessible way to people who mm, are struggling, exactly. but then also, you know, profit off of people who are rich, and then as a result, be able to mm. afford a you know a nice house mm. in the process. Like I think that's totally fine. Um, I yeah, I, I have no opposition
1: to that, really. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other areas yeah. you, uh, you want to you want to go into and, and into the question of spiritual yeah, capitalism? I mean, yeah, I think I think if, if
0: if you want, we can talk about the psychedelic stuff, um, which I, I I think is. Um, is interesting. Um, because, um, I think, I think there are a couple of different, um, ethical questions here. Mm -hmm. The first is, you know, um, you know, should, you know, what, what should the role of pharmaceutical companies be in, um, making these medicines accessible? Um, and the second question is like, how do we, um, make sure that we honor the indigenous communities, Mm -hmm. um, that, um, a lot of these psychedelic substances originate from. So, like, for example, in Gabon, which is uh, a country in Africa where a lot of Ibogaine is native, um, a huge number of Ibogaine trees have been trafficked recently, um, for their, um, Ibogaine containing roots, um, which is a huge problem. Um, and, you know, in South America, again, you have this rise of, um, ayahuasca tourism. Uh, it might be good to, to mention this, um, this, um, anecdote. Um, about something that happened back in the 50s. So back in the 50s, there was this guy named um, Gordon Wasson, who was, I mm. believe, the, the vice president of, of J.P. Morgan at the time. Um, uh, so, you know, very, very wealthy, very prominent dude, um, who heard about magic mushrooms and went down to Mexico, um, mm. where he knew that it was being consumed in a ritualistic fashion. Essentially got the trust of um, a local healer um, to give him the mushrooms. And... Um, and then, you know, he went back to the U.S. Um, and mushrooms were on the front cover of Life magazine. This is back in the 50s um, and magic mushrooms became popular in America. Mm. Um, and, you know, Gordon Watson, uh profited in some way or another off of this tremendously. What happened to the local healer whose trust he, he bought? Um, her uh, house got burned down and her, I believe, son or son-in-law was killed um, by the local community. Um, so, um, this is a great example of where, uh, reciprocity has gone wrong, uh, Mm. in spiritual capitalism, meaning that, um, you know, like people in the West, um, and we, we don't have to limit to just the West. People everywhere have, um, exploited, um, indigenous communities, um, for, um, uh, what they regard as incredibly important, culturally significant, spiritually significant, uh, modes of healing. Uh, those have been exploited, um, and have, you know, potentially left, um, uh, communities robbed in the process. So
1: mm-hmm. how do we deal with that? Um, yeah. Do
0: you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, um,
1: it's a very, very difficult scenario. I mean, right now yeah. you can imagine, um, companies from, from America, um, going to South America and I don't know exactly how it works, whether they have to make deals with indigenous people or work with them, but I think. Even indigenous people, they're not necessarily angels and, you know, from higher dimension beings. Well, if somebody gives them money, gives them something that they're happy about, I think they accept it. And I think, um, this is what's happening now with the retreats in South America. There is a collaboration between the indigenous communities and let's say Western companies. It's really difficult because I believe if, if the indigenous communities agree to the contract, then, uh, on that basis, they are inviting that to happen. There's yes, a different yeah. scenario where somehow they could, the Western companies could go to South America and use some other dodgy means, uh, you know, whether finding, uh, not really indigenous people, but just people who live in the area to provide kind of similar types of services. Let's say ayahuasca ceremonies, um, I think, or just self-taught shamans or who are not part of the tribes. I think yeah. that's where the issue is because, If cultural appropriation is anything, that would be cultural appropriation. But also on the top of that, using their medicine for capitalistic reasons of making money and those retreats, I mean, you can go online and see them. They're very, very expensive, extremely expensive. And I don't know how much of the money is actually going to the indigenous people, but because honestly, I have nothing wrong against capitalism. So it would be totally okay for the indigenous community to start, you know, started a business. I mean, there's nothing wrong against, you know, there's nothing wrong with a business, um, yeah. especially if your community is getting better and stronger. But I yeah. think we have to wait to see what happens as in, yeah. are there going to be consequences with the natural environment in the Amazon? Are there going to be consequences in, in terms of river pollution? Are there going to be consequences in terms of, uh, environmental issues. Uh, right. I think if maybe there is a few bodies involved who can regulate, um, this kind of transaction, this kind of contract between the indigenous people and Western companies, yeah. I think potentially it could be a good thing because yeah. as long as it's regulated and the healers are certified in a way by the indigenous people, um, right, right. Or if they're not indigenous themselves, at least if they have gone through the training, yeah, some rigorous training, I think it's okay because ultimately we're trying to expand this healing, extend it to everybody who can benefit. And I right. am also against this idea that oh, ayahuasca shamanism is can only be limited to South the South America. I don't believe anybody owns this stuff.
0: Nobody yep. owns yep. the
1: planet, and nobody owns the continent. So I think that's also a mistake to think, oh, this is just for this community. And the only way it can be done is if you go to the tribal people and nobody else can learn uh, with some other training to come up with their own healing. I think that's also a mistake because that goes into the ego of ownership. You own this land, you own this practice and you own this medicine. I don't think anybody owns this. Right, right. Exactly. hundred yeah. percent. And I, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, I, I think we're in
0: agreement here because um, I, I also agree that there's nothing wrong with somebody um, who is an outsider to these indi- indigenous communities mm-hmm. learning about um, ayahuasca, the rituals for taking ayahuasca and then coming back mm-hmm. to, you know, the West to be able to disseminate it because at the end of the day, more people benefit from that. Um, you know, if, if if people don't have to travel all the way to Peru, you know, to do an ayahuasca retreat where they can seek spiritual healing and instead can do it in, you know, their home country, then Mm. that makes it more accessible for everybody. I think that's totally fine. Especially Um, for the poor people. Yeah, exactly. In, In Portugal, where all drugs are decriminalized, um, you can go on these ayahuasca retreats, um, where the shamans are people who are European by origin but who have gone down to South America, who have spent substantial amounts of time learning from local tribes about um, ayahuasca rituals and ceremonies and then, you know, have come back and have, have, you know, practiced these retreats for a number of years, um, doing it in a very culturally respectful way. You know, I think that's totally fine. I think the issue is that, you know, like some people take ayahuasca or something like 5-MeO-DMT, which is produced naturally um, by a specific toad, take it, you know, once or twice think they're enlightened, uh, and then self style themselves as a shaman, uh, and, and, you know, start, you know, charging (laughs) retreats, um, and, you know, take on the spiritual title, essentially that I think is, is definitely wrong. Um, and so I do think that that there's like quite a bit of, of care that has to be put into this. Mm. I think that now we're, we're seeing, you know, I, I think, I think in the West, the problem is that, that, um, with the rise of these, you know, pharmaceutical companies, I think um, the infusion of capitalism into psychedelics means mm-hmm. that we are taking something that is very spiritually significant and turning it into something mundane. Mm-hmm. The best example of this, um, well, there are two examples of this. Number one is microdosing, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially um, some might say a spiritual bastardization um, of, um, of of psychedelics, because you know you're taking something that is meant to be consumed. In a very um, ritualistic, thoughtful, um, spiritual manner, and instead mm-hmm. you're taking it like a supplement so that you can, you know, be more productive, uh, and, um, and you know, work more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, mm-hmm. indigenous communities that heard about this, um, would be quite upset about the practice of microdosing because it's it's okay. essentially,
1: um, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I mean that that's interesting you said that because then we will have the first point of (laughs) disagreement, um, which would be interesting to, to dissect. Um, see, I don't think there is one way to use, let's say DMT. I don't think, and I don't think Mm. that way can be, um, established by people have been using it for thousands of years because it's a kind of a, I don't know, some fallacy of experience, you know, that because you've have thousands of years of experience and you've been using it in a particular way, therefore, it must be used in a particular way for everybody, for, for everybody, everywhere. I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, because mm-hmm. even though I think they're ritualistic and the fact that they take high doses of uh, DMT mm-hmm. and I ask, I do think yeah. that has its own place and purpose, but I have nothing wrong with somebody like you or me wants yeah. to improve their productivity and, um, taking some DMT or, Let's right. say we wanna further promote, we wanna further go into our meditations or further enhance our mind. Uh, we yep. take slight, uh, we take very minute amounts of DMT. Or if somebody right. is depressed or anxious and they are just discontented with the medical establishment and they self-medicate on DMT. I don't know friends, I have friends who do that and who have been hugely benefited because they take DMT on a regular basis, they microdose and LSD and right. their mental health is improved but then so i see the the fruit of the action you know um yeah. jesus said something in the new testament that judge them yeah. by their fruits if you take microdosing yeah. and it improves your mind improves your life and the life of people around you there's nothing yeah. wrong with that and you know uh this is goes back to something like religious authority well yes christians you pray in a certain way that's um instantiated in the bible and yes that's yeah. the way to pray that is uh, sort of established by them. But there's no reason somebody could come along and use the Christian Bible and say, look, I'm gonna pray in this way. As long as it helps yeah. their life and they do it responsibly, it's fine. So I don't think yeah. that the uh, natives have a religious authority over this over this uh, realm of yeah. things. And I think DMT I think- belongs to everybody. We produce it inside our bodies, right? So let's say right. I do breath yeah. work and I produce endogenous DMT. And somebody could say to me, well, you're not really, you're, did you use the word bastardized that you bastardized yeah, the yeah, yeah. spiritual? Well, I'm doing breath work. I don't know about them. I'm just using my own breath, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> using my own endogenous DMT system. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting because I think we agreed on everything. Uh, that's the first thing we yeah. can at least have a discussion yeah. about. I, I... <laughs> I think it's interesting. And, and I do want to clarify that I was, that I was mostly
0: speaking from the perspective of, you know, indigenous, um, communities where psychedelics are used in a virtualistic way. Um, uh, do I personally have a problem with microdosing? Um, I guess not. Um, I'm a utilitarian at the end of the day. And, uh, if, if people are, um, if people are becoming more, uh, productive, um, then I don't think that's a problem. Um, but you know, if, if you have the frame of mind that these are very sacred substances, um, then, mm. you know, of, of course you're going to take offense to people using them in a non sacred way. Um, which is, you know, why the, local, what, 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 what is, where, what does you know, it
1: mean? Sacred.
0: What yeah. Does sacred it's, mean? it's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, well, I mean, I think, in this case, like sacredness is, is definitely some kind of a cultural construct um, in the sense that mm-hmm. if exactly, you yeah. are a community exactly. where you know taking a certain psychedelic is something you do, for instance, only at a specific time of the month or a specific time of the year, um, at a specific time of the day, um, and there's all this process of preparation, both physically mm-hmm. and mentally and otherwise, mm-hmm. in order to get ready for yes. it and you know there's music and and all, you know all these all these other forms of ritual surrounding it um then of course you know you're going to see the psychedelic is something that is only that only ought to be consumed in that context right um mm-hmm. whereas if you view these things purely as just chemicals um you know that can be used for any purpose without any kind of ritualistic context and of course you're not going to see mm-hmm. them in a in a in a sacred light um, So, yeah, I I, I mean, I agree with you that, that, you know, nobody has um, a monopoly over the stuff. And I think what's interesting about, you know, psychedelics in the present day is that, you know, there's a division between these ancient psychedelics like ayahuasca and and psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, which have been around Mm -hmm. for, you know, as as long as humans have been around. Um, But then there are all these new chemicals, LSD being the most famous one, but then, you know, uh, MDMA, 2CB um, and so on and so forth. Um, all these are new and so there's no ritualistic context, um, surrounding them. Um, which means that, um, there's sort of a blank canvas, um, for people to do whatever they wish, um, with these substances, mm. um, without having to be concerned about any kind of cultural baggage, su- such as this concept of, of sacredness. I think though, like, and this is, this is where, you know, we can like reintroduce the idea of psychedelic medicine. Um, I, I think personally where this goes too far is when people invent, um, and this is currently happening right now, novel, um, uh, non hallucinogenic psychedelics, these, these novel substances, um, that are meant to have the same therapeutic, um, effects of psychedelics, but without the hallucinogenic experience that I think, um, even from my perspective is a complete bastardization, um, of the power of these substances. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, I agree with you, yeah. um, because you're, you're depriving them of, of their essence, really, I think um, and without mm. that, they're no longer psychedelics. Um, and and I think it comes down to an aversion towards you know hallucinations, drug taking, psychoactive substances on the mm. part of pharmaceutical companies. So I think that that's you know definitely an area in which you know um, psychedelic capitalism has will will lead to some problematic outcomes.
1: Yes, let me pick pick up your mind on something you said. So you mentioned yeah. MDMA and ketamine and things like that and um, that there is yep. no ritual right now um, available for people right. to experience these things for healing purposes. Well, I think yep. that actually is an invitation for our culture to create sacred spaces and sacred uh, activities, and to create yep. our own rituals to right. experience the substances in the way that provides maximum benefit for everybody. Um, yes. So let's say with MDMA, you, have, you could have white coat shamans like uh, psychotherapists, And people who are really trained in um, human behavior and can stay in the room with compassion, hold the space, and create a space with good lights, good music, good sound. And they're they're already doing that, I think, at different universities, Uh, people like, um, um, what was his name? I forgot, but the guy who's researching at Imperial College. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, Robert Carter, Carter Harris, yes. So <laughs> somebody like him, yes, exactly. Um, I think he is creating sacred spaces from what I've seen with my eyes, um, and I don't know if they call it ritual, but I think if the set and the setting is controlled, they have music, sounds, colors, intention, preparation, I think may, they may not use the word ritual to remain secular, which is fine, but that there's still a ritual. So, I think, right. I think what's unique about our culture, something positive about our, about our culture, is that we have um, a vast number of chemicals available, each of which can help with a particular kind of problem. Um, MDMA for PTSD, let's say. So it's really a great opportunity to, to really go for it to create amazing sacred spaces, amazing rituals, so people can be benefited. Right? Um, yeah. If the ri- ritual for me is enhanced intentionality, uh, both yeah. mentally and in the environment. So you make the environment intentional by having the right s- setting. You make your mind inten- very intentional. Uh, that means you right, right. determine the date when you're going to take it. You are um, very right. clear about what you want from the experience, your purpose, your goal. Yeah. Um, and I think with modern technology and With modern knowledge, vast knowledge we have of all the ancient cultures, we can really, really create amazing spaces, which is actually, if you think about it, is what we've been trying to do at the OPS, um, using the knowledge we have and what's available to create intentional ritualistic, uh, place, uh, ritualistic experiences for people. And so we are already doing that, right? Um, we do it with breath work, we do it with meditation, we do it with things like that, but, Again, it's not really the substance you take, it's the know. environment you create, the environment you're creating, both internal and external. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, I, yeah. I mean,
0: I, I, I agree with you that, um, you know, we have these um, forms of therapy that are essentially emerging um, uh, as ways of integrating the psychedelic experience, both during the experience and afterwards, and um, new kinds of, you know, therapies that have been developed, for example, at Imperial, Um, so that they're more suited to, um, um, uh, you know, therapy with, with magic mushrooms. I think there's a very important thing to note here though, which is that this is not a form of ritual. Um, when you take, uh, magic mushrooms, um, in a therapeutic context, you're taking it to treat treatment resistant depression, um, which is a very different thing from contacting spirits, um, and communing with the spiritual world. Um, if you're, if you're taking this in a therapeutic context, um, then there's a problem which you're seeking to address. Um, it's not as though you're trying to gain, uh, wisdom and knowledge about the universe as a whole. Um, so for example, if we take the, um, Shipibo tradition, um, where, um, ayahuasca has been consumed in ritualistic settings for, um, for a very, very long time, mm. um, there's this whole spiritual backdrop in which the rituals are taking place, an entire worldview, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, merely an individual problem to be solved. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, um, ayahuasca there is not actually the main character. It's actually playing a supporting role. So um, if you go to a Shipibo retreat, um, at least, you know, these are the ones that are available um, in Portugal, um, uh, you'll, you know, essentially be in a period of isolation for several days. Um, and then you'll be prescribed what are called these master plants, um, which are plants that contain different spirits. So, for example, the spirit of the jaguar, which might make you more perceptive, um, might make you better problem solving, and so on and so forth. Um, and there are all these different master plants that correspond to different spirits. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the function of the ayahuasca is to... Connect you to those master plants, which are working at an unconscious level. So you take these master plants once a day, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. during this period of isolation. And then at some point, you know, you take the ayahuasca once. The ayahuasca serves as a bridge between your subconscious, where the master plants are operating, and your consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a completely different way of viewing psychedelics than you know these um, settings where psychedelics are being used in a, in a therapeutic context. Um, because mm-hmm. again, there's there's um, an entire like culture, worldview, um, you know, a set of ideas, essentially,
1: um, behind that. So my question for you is that, do you think that we can create a space in the West um, where people are invited to come, secular people, if we are promoting a kind of uh, spirituality that involves spirits and ancestors and the spirits of jaguars and other animals and animal spirits and things like that, which I'm totally open to. Um, But I think, is that something people would see as something they want to do, especially in our secular culture? Does that not pose any issues with keeping things neutral? And maybe for true healing and true uh, transformation, maybe you have to have those kinds of practices of connection to spirit. And I'm totally open to that, but I don't know. Absolutely. So I think it's harder in the West.
0: Um, so, for example, in um, Brazil, um, there are several different religions that uh, revolve around the consumption of ayahuasca. So, for example, Santo Daime mm. um, is a church that essentially integrates Catholicism with the taking of ayahuasca. Um, Amazing. So it's it's taking it's taking a pre-existing religion and turning it into a backdrop for um, uh, f- for taking ayahuasca the the reason why things like Santo Diamond have succeeded and become popular though in Brazil is that um you know ayahuasca's been around for thousands of years um it's an mm. ancient practice uh whereas in uh in the west um psychedelics are still very very new um and when psychedelics have been attempted to be integrated with religions um they often tend to be perceived as cults um and <laughs> uh sometimes with disastrous consequences um i think it's very hard to um to create, um, to create new rituals around psychedelics in an explicitly religious context, in a way mm. that doesn't seem culty, um, or in a mm-hmm. way that, that doesn't yeah seem to the public to be culty, even if people are approaching it with with you know great intentions. Okay, exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I yeah. So I, I think I think there's this, there's, uh, think this huge issue of you know what is the culture surrounding psychedelics? Like for example, like back in the sixties. When, um, psychedelics first emerged, um, into the mainstream culture, they were surrounded by this, you know, by this whole atmosphere of, you know, hippiness, which, you know, I guess to a lot of people today has now taken on a bad connotation due to Nixon and the war on drugs and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, back then it was, it was about, you know, something broader. It was about, you Mm -hmm. know, um, the war on Vietnam, for example, it was about civil rights um, mm-hmm. it was about all these things. Um, and so there's this broader sense of cultural significance. And, but obviously, you know, psychedelics were also used in a responsible way and the, the science was not as advanced as it is now. And the FDA wasn't trialing these things for, for, you know, um, for, for serving as medicines. Um, so, so the movement sort of failed. Now the science is right. And the FDA is running these clinical trials and it's all very legitimate, Mm -hmm. but the broader sense of cultural significance has sort of dissipated. Mm -hmm. Um, Psychedelics Mm -hmm. are not Mm -hmm. being used as tools for a broader cause in America or in the UK or anywhere else in the West. So we sort of have to find, uh, in in my opinion, I think like um, something culturally significant for psychedelics to latch onto. Um,
1: And I, and I think that's that's tough I'm just going to quickly comment on what you said. Well, yeah, we have a mental health crisis right now. And if psychedelics yeah. are helping us in our mental health problems, do you not see that as a broader cultural issue? I mean, it doesn't have to be political. It could just be a mental health crisis. It could be a spiritual crisis, yeah. literally a spiritual crisis of um, yes. material- materialism, which has infected the societies and uh, yes. created issues. And some of which we call depression and uh, anxiety and things like that but do we even understand what those issues are what depression is what anxiety right. is i think ultimately those are spiritual um trials yes. uh which you go through right and right, if right. psychedelics Absolutely. right now are addressing that then don't you think right. that that is the cultural the broader cultural issue that psychedelics are addressing yeah. i don't know
0: I think, I think my concern is that when we go to uh, obviously, I know I'm a scientist, I'm all in favor of going all the way into the science, but I think, I think my concern is that when, when people, you know, um, uh, especially like, you know, government agencies that are now funding psychedelic research. When when these agencies and these pharmaceutical companies see psychedelics as, you know, just another chemical that happens to bind to the brain in this way, you know, which then triggers mm-hmm. this, you know, mm-hmm. downstream cellular signaling pathway. Right. And, you know, if we f- if we figure out exactly the pathways that it affects in the brain, then we can design these new chemicals that work more effectively and have fewer side effects, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. completely subtracts the spiritual language out of the practice. Um, and yes. I think it's very important to preserve that. Um, uh-huh. Um, in the psychedelic experience. I think that's why integration is such a difficult um, problem to solve. You know, how how Mm -hmm. do we get people to integrate this in a way that seems spiritually significant to them?
1: Yes, I think it's interesting. In, in In a scenario where we live in a free world and let's say we want to extend the benefits of psychedelics and especially shamanism to people in the West, I think ideally you would have um, the actual practices that are developed by the native, native people, and you will bring them to the West. Um, and those are people who have been properly trained by native, uh, native people. I think in the real world, you're going to have multiple organizations, many actors, good and bad, some are trained by the natives, some self-taught. Yeah, you could, you may have self-taught teachers that are good. You may have self-taught, um, teachers and, um, providers that are bad. But I think ideally what you want to have is, is an ecosystem, a free ecosystem where there's government funding, but there's also charity funding for psychedelics. And then for the ones like people who have been trained by the natives or the natives themselves, for them to create better organizations that provides better healing so that they can show to people, look, our services are creating spaces which is conducive to the betterment of your mental health, better than the scientists yes. who are just taking the chemicals and letting you experience something mundane or just taking yeah. the, the uh, psychedelics aspect away and allowing the chemicals to affect you. I think ideally what you want yeah. to do personally, I think it's not the best world scenario because I don't believe that we can actually limit people from and companies from from starting their own way of doing this. I think we should allow yeah. them to do whatever they want to do And then, um, really support those organizations that are providing the best service and truly, if they're providing the best service, they should be getting the most customers because people want to get better. And if I'm somebody who wants to get better and I look online, look at the reviews, talk to people and they say, go to this native Indian American, um, uh, center for psychedelics and go there for, for your healing. Um, then I will choose that over some other place, but still, if somebody doesn't want to contact the world of spirits, they don't want the whole metaphysical baggage that comes with those traditions, then they could go to the scientist. Well, again, if they get better, all the better, they don't have to contact spirits. They can just get better in in the way that they perceive to be good. So I think I, I like libertarianism. So I'm a libertarian and I think. Let people, even bad people do this badly, but then have transparency and openness. So you see who's good and bad, Um, not some sort of monopoly. If you have monopoly of some certain actors who have a lot of money, billionaires um, taking taking over this business, this is the worry. And then they create their own version of psychedelic therapy, then I think we have a problem. And that's very likely because Billionaires yeah. will eventually take over an industry. So I think there should be organizations that help individuals that are, that are providing truly authentic experiences for them to create good businesses and to compete against um, the ones who are being supported by billionaires. But how do you do that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, have no, no idea how, how you're going to do that
0: yeah yeah and 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 I think also one thing I want to emphasize is that there is no um real dichotomy at the end of the day between the mm-hmm. spiritual the spiritual world and the scientific world at some mm-hmm. point, there is going to be some union between these two things exactly. um, because at, at the end of the day whether or not whether you're explaining everything in terms of atoms or waves or fields um or you know one gigantic pool of consciousness um there is going to be some kind of you know, event that's happening in you know scientific mechanism that is occurring in the brain or elsewhere um, that explains all these different spiritual effects. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the problem is we don't know what that is yet, uh, and we're very, 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 very far away from an understanding of what that is at the moment. Um, but at, mm-hmm. at, you know, some someday, you know, hopefully these these two different ways of seeing um, psychedelics will become linked to each other. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason why you know a lot of um, Uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, uh, funding bodies are trying to, um, secularize, um, psychedelics and quote unquote, take the magic out of magic mushrooms, um, is out of this fear, essentially, um, that, you know, using the language of mysticism will prove unpalatable, Mm. um, to, you know, people who are hard-nosed scientists or people who believe in, you know, achievable clinical outcomes. Um, and uh and you know i mean i i understand their fears um but we have to embrace <laughs> psychedelics and what they are which is you know successful vehicles essentially um yes. and I mean, uh and th- we can't lose them yeah
1: yeah there is a great example where i think the scientists will struggle to keep uh, spirit out of out of the room out of the room and i think right. that's the DMT uh the long DMT yeah. trials that are, that are happening DMTx is that right DMTx Um, well, I've, I've heard a few people talk about the DMTX experience, um, and, um, it seems like, well, I don't want to go too far in what I'm going to claim, but it appears that the DMT experience is somewhat more uniform than the other psychedelic experiences. Um, you meet and encounter a realm full of entities, intelligent entities that are autonomous, that are more intelligent than you, and you recognize that. And. Fascinating thing that happens with DMT that doesn't happen with other psychedelics is that you come from the experience, the majority, and they say, this is more real than real. This is actually, mm-hmm. you nice. never get this statement from anything. Maybe with occasional mm-hmm. dreams that you have, you said that was really real, but even in dreams, people yeah. don't tend to say this was even more real than this reality. Um, and, you know, there could be a principle that the human, body and the human system um is also like a measuring device you know if it works if it functions properly and if your measuring device is telling you that was more real than this and then you get that across the board uh millions of people like 60 70 percent of people take dmt come and say these are um intelligent beings and I'm not sober. I'm talking to you as a sober person. And I still believe that. So I think with that, we have a problem. And then the problem gets even bigger if people are in the DMT experience for longer periods, let's say 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and the world seems to be like a consistent coherent world with beings you can interact with. And I think, I think it's fascinating. Like if, if the scientific studies of DMT takes it, to the ultimate goal, ultimate end of what is possible to scientifically study. I think people are gonna really, really struggle to just hand wave this as uh, well, it's just the chemicals in the brain, bro. You just high bro, there's nothing else, you know? Uh I don't right, think right, you right. can dismiss I think I don't think you can dismiss that because there are certain principles where you can determine what reality is, and that's consensus, that's consistency, that's coherency. And those are the principles we use to determine this reality, right? If something right, right. is consistently appearing in front of you, you would say, "Okay, now that's there." And somebody else sees the same thing and says, "I also consistently am seeing this object." Then that object yeah, yeah. becomes an object that is, you know, in the public world. Now it's, it's a real object. Well, something really right. similar is happening with the with people who are experiencing DMT, even in the in the initial studies with Doctor Rick Strassman. That, uh, there is a consistency uniformity between people's experiences. And what do we do with that? Honestly, there can be so much research done on the philosophy of experience, how we determine an experience to be real and compare that to the DMT world. And I think we're going to really struggle to just dismiss that as, um, pure yeah. chemical reaction in the brain. What do, what do you think?
0: Well, so, I mean, I think there's, there are two separate questions here. One is like the metaphysical question. And and the second is like how this stuff like pertains to to therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, I completely acknowledge um, uh, and agree with people's assessments that, you know, this is at the end of the day, you have to trust the people who are taking the DMT and they all Mm -hmm. conclude that, um, or if the majority of them conclude that that this feels more real than real, then, then, you know, Mm -hmm then that's, that's true by default because they're, they're reporting directly from their own experience. Um, yeah, uh, and you know, that very well could come down to some kind of mechanism that's happening in the brain that, you know, that some, something is happening and as a result, your consciousness is changing. Um, and you have this feeling that what you're perceiving is, is extremely real. Um, and then I think there's like the question of how this comes back to ethics, because if you're a pharmaceutical company, and you're prescribing DMT for, let's say, I don't know, it could be anywhere, anything from depression to headaches. Um, DMT is a very mm-hmm. effective. Well, the, the uh, science on this is still very preliminary, but but could be very useful for treating cluster headaches, which are a very painful form of headaches. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you prescribe this right, and somebody gets you know blown out of their body um, into this alternate universe where they see these mm-hmm. extraordinary extraordinarily lifelike beings who seem to be higher powers, and they come back. Um, and all their therapist tells them is, well, you know, as long as you're, uh, feeling better with respect to your headaches and your depression, then forget <laughs> about the entities You know, um, it doesn't really matter. We don't take a stance on this. Um, I don't think there's actually a way that you can avoid that as it because like, yeah, this kind of needs to have answers. You know, they can't just be like, oh, well, you we know, we're agnostic. <laughs> you know, I think they, I, I think you have to actually kind of have some kind of explanatory framework in mind.
1: If yes, pers- and I think that's quiet. why the therapists also. Yes, and I think that's why the therapists have to themselves be very experienced with these with these uh, substances. Um, yeah. at yeah. least hundred to two hundred times. Uh, at least, I think. Yeah. Uh, I so think that you don't good, just a dismiss question. this.
0: Yeah, I, this is a, this yeah, is yeah, a yeah.
1: debate I've had with a few people about. Like,
0: you know, like should psychedelic therapists take the psychedelics? Um. It's a good question, um, because like I understand the argument against it. Like, for example, you know, should people who treat bipolar have had past experience with bipolar? Um, I think more. Well, people I would think say that's a no slightly that. different.
1: Yes, I think that's slightly <laughs> different, though, because with bipolar, um, I think with bipolar it's impossible to become bipolar, right? With DMT, there is an opportunity to to yeah. take this and that's... to. To experience this, right? With bipolar, yeah. I think, like, you can't. And you shouldn't. Like, if you're a healer, you shouldn't become bipolar to treat bipolar because then you're hurting yourself. Yeah. But with DMT, there doesn't seem to be much of a, you know, huge harm on, on your body. In yeah. fact, yeah. it tends to be a benefit to you. To you. So yeah. um, can you, as a therapist, then talk to the person who's just taken some DMT and talk... Right. To him through his experience if you yourself haven't right. had any experiences i think you'll, that would be a right. weak psychotherapist personally right. um be, because yeah. I mean, I, I'm in- there is there is a danger of dismissing dismissing yeah. or trying to explain away this phenomenon, yeah. is, or just focus on the healing and not focus on a broader picture
0: absolutely man and i mean i'm i'm inclined to agree with you of course but I think this puts, um, you know, uh, companies in a very, uh, precarious ethical position because you're telling people to, you're telling these therapists who are providing your service to illegally
1: take a drug basically. Right. Well, <laughs> um, not, not illegally, uh, well, they, they can, they can, they can do it legally. I, I can mean, go to South America or, or Portugal. Yeah, they yeah I guess you travel. Could, yeah, yeah, that's true. You could, you could go to South America. That's,
0: that's, that's a fair point. And yes. Um, um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a possibility. Um,
1: but in the yeah, beginning, I mean, Albert Huff, Yeah. sorry, go sorry. In, in the beginning, Albert Hoffman, um, and people who were the first, um, the first group of people who were using LSD for healing purposes, the rule was try it first yourself before you give it to your patients. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think prior. that's a good rule because you get to appreciate it. You get to understand it, you're working with it. Absolutely. Um, you know, even if you experience. Maybe if you experience, you also get to, like the shamans in South America, work with the spirits. And maybe you can change your frame of reference, your viewpoint over what spirits even are. Because spirits could just be intelligent aspects of nature which are communicating to you. There's nothing weird or mystical about it. It's just powers of nature. And then you're in direct communication with powers of nature. So I think if people, psychotherapists, truly experience DMT, I think eventually they will come back to what the shamans have yeah. initially thought what these experiences are. And that doesn't yeah. mean to say you tell the patient, oh, this is a, a spirit of a jaguar uh, interacting yeah. with you, or this is some alien. No, but it gives you an empathy towards, an acceptance yeah. towards yeah. people's experiences and allows you to be more open than, right, than right. dismissive. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, in many cases, when you take ayahuasca, um, for instance, in the Shipibo tradition, like the shaman will take the ayahuasca with you as well, um, which I think is kind of inconceivable to, uh, you know, like modern scientists in the West, uh, you know, mm. like the idea of, 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 you know, getting the therapist high on mushrooms while the, the patient is him or herself high on mushrooms, you know, mm. seems like a, probably a crazy idea um, yes. to a lot of people. Yes. but. But I mean, I think that like, you know, in the same in in the same way that like, I mean, going back to the example of bipolar, like I like as somebody who, you know, has not um, had bipolar in my life, um, I can sympathize with people who have had bipolar, but I can't empathize with them, Mm. you know, like, I I Mm. don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. Exactly. Yes. Um, And it's a very good distinction. I think, I think. Yeah. I, I think anybody who's sufficiently emotionally intelligent can sympathize with somebody who's going through a psychedelic trip, but can't empathize with it. Exactly. Um, they don't, they just don't know what it's like at the end of the day. Um, and, and, uh, a lot of, a lot of ideas like interconnectedness and ego death are just words until you actually experience them.
1: Yes, exactly. No, that's a very, that's a very, very interesting distinction. Uh, because empathy in the way, in the way you define it is we have to have an experience that is similar to the other person, then you can truly understand what they're going through. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. There was, there was a point I was going to mention, uh, has to come back to me. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily directly connected to ethics, but it's a, it's a thought that perhaps psychedelics are a very reliable tool to change the minds of scientists that are ordinarily Focus on you know very direct focus. They don't have a uh, horizontal focus. They have a vertical focus, and tends to be the um, the way the scientist minds work. Right, very focused on, very reductive, going into every atom and every detail um, rather than a holistic approach. Yeah, I think I think it would be interesting that psychedelics, because they directly give you that experience. Let's say you're a scientist. I don't believe you can experience many of these uh, substances, especially DMT um, over over time and not have any change of belief or views about what reality is. I think it would be very difficult to imagine that, especially if yeah. I think what I see is that young scientists who are tend to be open-minded, tend to be uh, more cooperative with the spiritual people from other cultures. Yeah. Uh, because they're young, because they're open-minded, we can you guys can build a good foundation for the people to come after you um, a foundation not not necessarily based on any belief but based on radical openness to what could be real, yeah but then when you experience something, openness itself is not enough because yeah. you you could say, "Oh I'm just open to experience," and you keep experiencing uh, let's say intelligent entities and you keep coming back and you say, "Well, I don't want to believe anything, I'm just open." <laughs> right, right. But right, yeah. but then still you're denying those experiences, right? Like if you have an experience which involves, let's say, higher power, higher dimensions, and you not saying that's necessarily true, but you could be in a place that's just more than open, like a place where yeah. you're learning, where you are working yeah. with the spirits, not to say they're real, but to say working with these intelligent entities if they are real. Because, yeah. yeah, in the world, there there can be many, there can be many organisms that are intelligent, that right. are perhaps ac- accessible through DMT. So if you're a scientist yeah. and you know that you can access powers of nature directly, right. then you right. can use that to enhance somebody else's experience exactly. or enhance your knowledge, it would yeah. be a kind of um, resistance to not be open to that and just say, well, yeah. I just want to be neutral. because being neutral is not neutral <laughs> yeah, course, because if that's your principle, I'm, I'm always going to be neutral. Well, that itself is a, is a very strong principle that you're going by. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I had a supervisor, um, in my, in, in undergrad, um, who, um, who mentored me in Alzheimer's research and, um, his name, his name is Rudy Tanzi and, uh, he used lucid dreaming to solve research problems. Uh, and claims that, um, to 90% of the insights that he arrived at in his dreams actually ended up being Mm. true in the quote unquote real world. Um, and, um, and you know, that, that's another example of essentially accessing an altered state of consciousness in order to derive insight about what's happening in this reality. Um, Uh and, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I agree with you that you know people are scientists are going to use this and um, and and uh, and hopefully arrive at, at new insights. Um, and even if you're exactly, not a scientist, yeah. you know, like like philosophers, for example. Like I was having this conversation the other mm-hmm. day with um, this guy named Roger Crisp, who is one of the main um, uh, Roger Crisp, of the world- yeah, Roger Crisp, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, okay. A lot of my essays was based on Roger Crisp. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I met him because he's one of, I think he's like an advisor for my lab, basically the Center for Udemonia and Human Flourishing at Oxford. That's amazing. Um, and, and as you'll know, he's, he's one of the world's foremost um, hedonist philosophers. Um, and I was talking yeah. to him about MDMA. Um, and, you know, and I was like, you know, if, if we found a way to make MDMA non-neurotoxic, is this something mm-hmm. that, you know, people ought to be taking ethically? Um, and he was like, "Well, you know, the problem is that you know, if you just have this dose of euphoria, it's never going to be the same as, for example, like listening to like Beethoven's Symphony, Ninth Symphony, which you know for you will carry a lot of personal meaning. It's like, well, if you try MDMA, <laughs> you know, you'll realize that um, it's not just a dose of euphoria. A Dose of euphoria is mm, intimately mm, connected with feelings yes. and meaning and so on in your yes. life, yeah. um, and and and, and will will lead you to have a transformative experience." Um, mm and uh and and so you know, I think like taking these substances is also good for philosophers too to expand their notions of what well-being is, so uh-huh. um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and as a philosopher, I think it's amazing to notice that if you haven't experienced something, you can't even begin yeah. to either dismiss or um approve or understand in fact, you have no internal reference. For it. Right. Because our references are from experience, right? So you right, have, right. you gather a data bank of references in your, in your mind or in your brain. And, um, they're based on the experiences you've had and based on those, you make value judgment that this experience is like this, or this is better than this. If you've never had uh, MDMA in a therapeutic session or in a spiritual session, you can't say, well, I enjoy Beethoven more because more than what right. there's a, there's right. an idea to have like a concept of what it is, but it's not right. actually a thing. So if right. he's a philosopher and he's honest, he, he can't even talk about that as in, he, right. he, he cannot even open his mouth and talk about it. The only way to right. talk about it is to first experience it, build an internal reference and then say, okay, Beethoven music is better than MDMA. Then, okay, good. Right. You're a good you can open your mouth, but you put
0: the MDMA inside of it and then swallow it. And then, and then you can talk about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We do not endorse use <laughs> <specific> of recreational purposes. <policies. laughs> well, if if you are, if you have PTSD, well, um, I think we could, um, tell people to, uh, have as an option, the possibility of, uh, therapy in a therapeutic context. You could join a research team or join a university that's doing research on, PTSD and MDMA or go to Portugal spend a couple of thousand pounds people spend a couple of grand on many things if yeah. you want to transform your life and there is an opportunity that you feel like is good for you well see assess that for yourself but then you could you could go and experience something that's that could be transformative for you. Yeah. um yeah it's very interesting i mean we, we spoke about many things but it's very interesting that when people like scientists or philosophers talk about psychedelics without taking it, there is a kind yeah. of, uh, I get annoyed at that. And I think the annoyance is not like just an, it's a random emotion. It's a philosophical annoyance because it doesn't make sense. You know, it logically doesn't make sense to talk about something and comparing it without experiencing it. I it just doesn't make sense. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. we've reached one hour and, and twelve minutes. If if you have any other uh, points you want to raise, Kenneth, no, I'd like think, a con- um, way to conclude this or maybe bring it together.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I you're right. We've talked about a lot of different things. Um, and uh, yeah. I mean, we we started off by talking about um whether or not spiritual teachers should be uh, in the business of making lots of money for themselves, and I think we came to the conclusion that. As long as they make their services accessible to people, um, then mm. it's perfectly okay for them to lead at least a comfortable life. And then we started talking about um, psychedelic medicine and um, how to um, make these commercial in a way that is um, fair to indigenous communities um, and also in a way that preserves the the cultural or, or um, spiritual importance of these substances. Um, and then and then in the end, we um, started talking about. Um, uh, psychedelics and new notions of, of meaning, uh, and how to integrate that also, um, in, um, in therapeutic contexts. Uh, so a lot of different topics.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's been very fruitful. Thank you so much for for joining me, joining me again.